Welcome to the FinTech and Digital Banking Podcast by BCG Platinian. Your hosts are Annika Melchert and Nora Hocker. Join them as they talk to hand-picked fintech experts about the future of banking. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the FinTech and Digital Banking Podcast by BCG Platinian. Your hosts today are myself, Nora, and next to me is my fabulous colleague, Annika. Hi there. So, for today's episode, we have invited a very special guest, Peter Großkopf, among others, the former CTO of Solaris Bank. Hello and welcome, Peter. Yeah, hi. Pleasure to be here with you today. Yeah, great having you here. So, for those of our listeners who might not yet know you, could you please introduce yourself and Maybe if, if we can make this a bit special, if you could answer the three following questions. So first one, who are you? Second, what makes you a fintech specialist? And third, what are you passionate for? Yeah, so who am I? Let's start with that one. I'm actually a tech guy who ended up in fintech and banking. And so how did that happen? Well, my career started as a software developer. So I financed my studies with um, of information systems with doing coding work that turned into a small development company helping startups and corporates to, to build software. Seven years ago, I decided to, to move on and to, to sell my shares of the, of the company, go to Berlin and join a company builder. And that company builder, Hitfox, decided in, in those days that they wanted to also enter the fintech space. So it was in the very early days of the company builder Finleap, who was started by Hitfox Group. And yeah, so that confronted me with the, the whole new topic like fintech ventures, banking, and all the potential that's in there. And it's actually really exciting that I, that I was able to join that club and to see and learn a lot. And uh, yeah, and nowadays I'm thinking about digital banks, uh, decentralized finance and all this kind of stuff I would have never imagined a few years back. Yeah, so what makes me a fintech specialist? Yeah, I kind of answered it already. So I was at Hitfox, um, the CTO, and my team was building the prototypes for new ventures. So we got in touch with, for example, also the very early ventures at Finnip, like Zavedo uh, and Zinsbaustein. We also worked at the, in, in Clark um, in the very, very beginning, uh, Pair Finance and so on. And it was a great opportunity to yeah, see new business models develop and to be able to, to also build on them. And when we started Solaris Bank, which is like a banking as a service company, which offers fintech companies kind of um, two things, some infrastructure, so like banking infrastructure and um, also the banking license. As uh, I moved to Solaris Bank as the founding CTO, we also were in touch with a lot of clients uh, which came from the fintech industry. So also learning about their pains and demands was pretty insightful also to get that perspective of the fintech industry. And uh, what am I passionate for? Well, I'm a technologist, so very obviously I love technology and to, to learn a lot about it. But um, I'm also an entrepreneur, so I like to start companies from the scratch and give it also kind of a special note of, um, of organizational culture 
So a lot of independence to team members and yeah, so that it's really fun to work in and uh, to take a lot of responsibility and this conglomerate of technology, entrepreneurship and organizational culture is probably the three topics that are around me all the time. So you already mentioned that there are some aspects which fintechs might be doing better than traditional banks. So based on your experience, are there any other aspects you would like to add to, to this? Well, from my perspective, also where the whole fintech movement was coming from was mostly driven by improving user experience compared to financial services that uh, users in those days were used to use. So, for example, if you use online banking of your traditional bank, especially a couple of years back, the user experience has, has been pretty bad. There were not mobile apps available and so on and so forth. And the early fintechs especially attacked that aspect, kind of improving usability, knowing more about the customer, really trying to understand the customer and also understand the demand and the desires of the customer. And so therefore, products were developed that were really easy to use and that really people love to use. And in the end, fintech companies also started to kind of um, revolutionize kind of uh, all the aspects around financial services. But I think also now, a few years later, we experienced that a lot of fintechs entered the collaboration world with banks because in the end, really running for a banking license or for some license in the financial service industry is really a hard play. And there's just a few startups that actually went that path. Yeah, that's a really interesting aspect you're mentioning about banking license. So covering that maybe under the hood of the regulatory burden overall, obviously as, as fintechs grow and, and that's something that incumbent big banks have to fight for quite a long time now, the regulatory burden increases. And how can you, I mean, you start with a really cool, neat, lean technology. How can you keep that and, and keep the also innovative spirit while complying with all these regulatory requirements that, that increase? Yeah, so from my point of view, first of all, I would really like to say that regulatory projects can also be innovative. Because, yeah, regulation is mostly or widely understood as kind of like the reason why things are slower or why additional efforts have to be made. But from my point of view, if you do it the right way and if you really understand what's um, coming towards you, even in a growing fintech company, you have a lot of opportunity to really build it in a sustainable and uh, also in a way that it doesn't really break your legs. Because in the end, Yeah, fintechs mature for sure. And then license come into play, license bring regulation. When we were working at Solaris Bank, the license was kind of core of the whole value proposition. So that um, probably also changes my view on what a fintech is and also its relation to, to the topic of a license. And when we were building up Solaris Bank, there was one spoken word that I used in the IT strategy for like all the time, like from the very beginning. And that luckily also got picked up by, by the board members and it was called compliance as code. And so I, I got that term kind of from, I think I listened to a podcast like, in, like a couple of years back and um, I found it really interesting because me coming from development side of things, like from the engineering side of things, I was always thinking about like, hey, how 
can we actually build a company that kind of is a bank and uh, fulfills all the regulatory aspects, but at the same time also feels like a startup like Spotify, where engineers really love to work in. And from, from my point of view, it's really about building as much as automation as possible. And to give an example, there's this uh, aspect in banking organization of having the market side of things and having the organizational side of things. So in German, it's Marktseite and Marktfolgeseite. And in the end, it's about kind of having this separation of the functions uh, on the one hand, addressing market needs and probably like signing contract and so on, offering something and on the delivery side. And in IT, uh, when you work in a startup, usually what you would talk about vertical teams and there's the product team member also part of the dev team. And it's very short paths that you have these autonomous teams and so on and so forth. And in the end, kind of the, the two concepts usually break. But if you design the development process in a way where on the one hand, you have kind of the, the product team member who's on the market side kind of defining things, then you can build a lot of process automation also with project management tools to bring kind of the, the tasks to the delivery side of things to, to the IT, then have like test processes, um, of course, as automized as possible, but also acceptance tests and so on and so forth, also done by, by the market side again. And if you collect as much metadata as possible while processing these steps, you end up kind of with already one of the core ideas of aspects in a, in a bank that you have like an audit trail for like each feature, who defined it, who accepted it, who tested it and who built it and, and so on and so forth. So that was the root of, um, of all developments that we, that we set up. And in the end, as banking is pretty much about transparency. So also if you look into, let's say, the non-technical departments, so it's about creating reports for, for different topics, creating KPIs and tracking them, reporting them to the regulatory offices and so on. And from my point of view, the more data-driven you build an organization, so that, that you are able to collect also as much fiscal data as possible and have them at hand to create all those reports. You can also fulfill these uh, transparency requirements. And if you automize it, it will help you a lot. Cool. That sounds uh, comprehensive, putting everything into one good process, actually. Could you maybe elaborate a bit more on this? So, for example, a new regulatory requirement, like a certain data export or so comes in and you might not have it yet. How would that run through this process if you had to implement it? Would that also be within the product organization? So in the companies I worked in so far, we kind of made the data teams like a separate team. So, but it's, that's like an organizational question. You, I think you can do this in, in different ways. I think it's more important to have like a clear organization and a clear structure on where data is coming from and who's responsible for it and uh, kind of how it's processed. So it's in the end, and I would say in, in my last position where I've been at Börse uh, Stuttgart Digital Exchange, that we also built like a data platform from the very beginning. And it was pretty much about designing the process of kind of the owners of the databases. So it, what, there was like a clear responsibility who is owning what data sets. And those teams were also responsible to deliver those data sets 
like in a certain structure and a certain time frame to the data platform. And from there, people were able to do all the analytics and run reports and, and so on. And we also separated different data lakes, like for GDPR relevant data and non-GDPR relevant data and so on and so forth. So to yeah, also keep excellence in all the process around data. I think many banks or many regulated companies already struggle with this first step so that it's um, unclear who's responsible for the data or there's even data duplicates and different systems and then kind of all the challenges in building the integration layer also come into play. And I think if you set up an organization from the very first day and if you keep an eye on data and, and processes from the very beginning, I think this um, can be pretty helpful. And maybe also responding to the first part of your question, because you also asked about laying the, the previous point a little bit deeper. So from my point of view, and when I say my point of view, I must disclaim that I'm a tech guy who ended up in the financial industry. And therefore, I always tried to kind of build bridges into the topics because I had to learn a lot and I read books, I talked to people and I really tried to understand what is actually a bank and how does it work. And for me, like when it comes to the regulatory level, a bank is a very transparent company, also in terms of like this data collection and being able to report a lot of different measures that cares a lot about business process excellence. So what does the latter part mean? So from, from my point of view, and now switching to the IT side of things again, IT in German banks is pretty much dominated by uh, MA risk and BIT and and all these um, all these rules that you have to follow and kind of looking on those rules with a neutral eye and I was talking about this like hey how would Spotify do it from my point of view it's really about having a lot of business process excellence in the company from very beginning because having like a emergency concept how to deal with like infrastructure events and so on and having like certain decision structures and a role right concept and, and and so on and so forth so from my point of view this is not stuff where bafin and other regulators try to put needles into into people <laughs> from from my point of view it's really business process excellence and if you look into mature startups so like in google or in facebook or spotify probably they have a role right concept so that nobody can shut down systems and so on and so forth. And also their systems are running 24-7 all the time. So like also banking systems are supposed to run 24-7. And from my point of view, all the time when I was working in financial service industry, I tried to decouple myself from this working behavior to think that I have to fulfill something, that somebody forces me to do something I really try to to get the positive out of it that it's like a a set of rules that helps me to to build a very stable company with a lot of business process excellence. Okay, so focusing on the things that might be not that easy to to set up properly in the beginning. What would you refer um, as your biggest mistakes from a technical point of view, or something you wish you you had done otherwise in your in your startups? Well. <laughs> My perspective on mistakes is that rule for myself that I try to do as many mistakes as possible. And at the same time, I try to do more things right than I do mistakes. Yeah. So in the end, if you do many mistakes, this also means that you try out a lot of stuff. 
And I think if it does not hurt anybody's lives or if there's like no financial consequences or consequences for, for customers, it should be allowed to, to really try out things and also go different paths. Therefore, I think we could have like a full episode on mistakes. So as you asked for one that uh, still stays in my head for quite a while, like once I introduced like another programming language in a, in a project, so where I thought like, hey, it would be a great idea to have like different language concepts and just combining the benefits of all of them. But on the long run, it turned out that there was also like different methodologies around the languages and so that it's kind of in the end, probably it brought some some positive aspects, but it weighed out the negative aspects so that it was in the end an, a null sum. Since then, I always um, try to really see a, like a benefit in when introducing a new technology. And so I try to be less trend-driven and taking those also long-term decisions as it's also connected to recruiting, building organizations, structuring teams, and so on. I really try to take those decisions more more wisely these days. So your recommendation for all upcoming fintech CTOs outside would be just stick on a lean tech stack where you feel comfortable with and don't add unnecessary complexity. Yeah, so from my point of view, unnecessary complexity is uh, probably like an aspect that you should keep an eye on. Definitely also the scalability, but also scalability can be seen with different meanings. On the one hand, there could be the technical scalability so that kind of response rates are fast enough so that it doesn't kill the user experience and so on, and that you can scale horizontally. So if you have like an increasing demand for your service that you can scale up very quickly, that's probably the aspects that everybody knows. From my point of view, it's also very important to build an extendable platform so that it's very easy to build something on top and also to change things. And this also in relation to the organization. So because um, when, when I'm working on projects in tech, I always try to see the two facets because on the one hand, there's like the core technology, kind of how it's built, the architecture, performance metrics, and so on and so forth. But on the other side, there's also the teams who are building it and how they organize and to make them as efficient as possible. And in the end, I think everybody or every company that has like an extendable platform and also team culture that helps to react very quickly to, to new movements and that you can kind of put on a, a new team that works maybe also on a trend topic or something. That's the, the most important thing because the bigger a company grows, the more legacy you will build and the stiffer the organization also will become. And I think like fintech, like in comparison to, to banking today is, is like a trend. So the banks are talking about fintechs with the idea of digitizing their business. But we all know that the digitization will never stop. Yeah, So it's, it's not about like now becoming a fintech or becoming a fintech bank. It's about like doing this for the next unlimited years. And the speed of development and technology will also increase. Therefore, I think every company would win that now builds technology and technology structures and organizations that are capable to react to the speed of development that happens in the specific or respective industry. These are really, really cool points. And 
if if I may, I would really like to to dive a bit deeper into these two aspects: the one, the platform, and the second, the culture. So, starting with the first one, the platform, maybe. What, in your opinion, constitutes a good architecture? Well, a good architecture, and that's, that's my personal opinion, first, it needs to solve the problem that it has to solve. Because I think talking about people in IT, also like a lot of people that I know, we tech people are kind of caught also in this, in this zoo of technologies and approaches and architectures where also sometimes we are motivated to try out something new just to see how it works. But sometimes this leads into the situation that the architecture doesn't follow the function that it needs to solve. And therefore, I'm a big fan of building prototypes and kind of every time ask yourself to, to build something the easiest, the leanest way. And really probably just like taking an eye on the next six months that are ahead of you are probably a year. But I think it's fundamentally wrong to build an architecture in a way where you try to fulfill all the potential restrictions and all the potential requirements that come into play for the next five years. And sometimes architecture projects are a little bit built like that. And this leads into a lot of hassle, uh, restructuring, probably you're not solving the problem in a better way. And yeah, in the end, this also won't make a company successful. So I could imagine also when there's an idea about trying out something new, it's, it makes a lot of sense to build prototypes, to try them out, to get them as close to the production as possible. And also to add another point, because I've seen this in, in many projects in, in my life, also where friends of mine worked, that kind of a whole infrastructure gets updated just because it's possible to update it. The very early in my career, I found like an example that showed me the opposite. I don't know if it's still the same in Xing, so like New Work, SE, I think is the company name these days, this social network. And a couple of years back, somebody told me that kind of the very core engine of the social network still is written in Perl. Why? Because it works. Yeah, so that it, uh, it has all the features and um, kind of if you write the same stuff in Ruby or in C Sharp for the user, it would feel the same. Yeah, it doesn't add any functionality to, to the whole product. Therefore, I would really think about like, does it really make sense then to rewrite it if it doesn't add any value to the user? And I think that's also a very good question always to ask when really thinking about huge architecture projects. Coming back to such a, a more old-fashioned programming language, how can they ensure that they're always having motivated developers working on this? Or even clarifying the maintenance of such a language, which, for instance, I haven't learned back when, when I was still programming. Well, so this question kind of adds the other side of the trade-off decision. On one hand, uh, like I previously said, it makes a lot of sense. Like if part of the product works and if you don't want to add like any value add to this product, you can stay with the old stack. But 
you should do this as long as the language somehow is maintained and it doesn't introduce security problems because kind of the technology is totally outdated. And also the aspect of finding developers. Well, in banking world, there's always the COBOL examples of, I don't know, former teachers who learned COBOL then worked in the bank and now are retired and they you get them back to work just to, to solve some coding issues. That's probably the other side of the part. But from my point of view, I was talking about the speed of digitization a little bit earlier. And from my point of view, once you're kind of, re you really try to pick up the speed of the developments in digitization, I think this automatically also will confront you with decisions like, dropping something completely and write it new with uh, all the requirements that you learned so far. Yeah, so I could um, imagine that organizations in the future will also have disposable code. Yeah, where you really say you build something just like to serve a specific service and probably there will be three years later, the point in time you don't need it anymore. And then you just throw it in the trash bin and build it in a better new way, but having like very small, consistent services that you can maintain very easily and where you take into account that code is not there forever. So that's basically how good microservices should be built. <laughs> yeah, so maybe coming back to the second deep dive I was asking for. So you were also talking about culture and how, how that is a, a crucial success factor for a fintech. So what exactly are, are characteristics, in your opinion, of a good culture and how do you establish it? Yeah, here I can especially point my opinion because I think everybody has a different idea on how the right organization looks like. And I think it also pretty much depends on how do the leaders think and how the whole company works. But from my point of view, I kind of grew up and live in the space of autonomy and autonomous teams. And from my point of view, I really think it's, it's the right way to organize, to have small independent teams, to staff them as vertical as possible. So for example, there will be teams that deal with user interfaces. So there you need to have a designer and probably a UX tester and so on and uh, front-end developers. And then there's like the back-end related teams, the data related teams, and you would uh, stuff them in, in the ways how they really need special skills. And each of these teams can organize in, in an independent way. So develop their own roadmaps. And I would feed them kind of with the information that is relevant to them. So for example, with the company strategy. So where do we want to go? Also define OKRs so that it's completely aligned where we all want to head together. And then these teams can deliver to it independently. Also develop their own motivation and, and culture and also take a lot of responsibility because so when I've seen hierarchic organizations with um, a lot of power, which was, which comes from like the upper management, most of these organizations uh, deliver pretty poorly and it's uh, really not fun to work in there. And people often do just what they have to do, but they don't bring in too many innovative ideas or their like independent spin for special projects. And yeah, me coming from the startup world, I really see the benefits of uh, giving uh, to the employees and to the team members and also letting them things do the way they think it's right. 
And yeah, so this increasing motivation and that they make it also their company, this um, brings a lot of benefits from my point of view. Cool. Thanks a lot. That was really inspiring. And as we are already at the end of today's episode, I would say really fantastic closing words from your side. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. Um, it was fun to talk to you today and uh, yeah, looking forward to our next conversation. And this conversation will be about a topic you're very passionate about, decentralized finance. So, dear listeners, make sure to not miss the episode. And hit the follow button, it's worth it. You've been listening to the FinTech and Digital Banking Podcast by BCG Platinian. BCG Platinian, your experts on IT strategy, modern technology architecture, and state-of-the-art banking. The digital future is now. For more information, check bcgplatinian.com. <laughs>